Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Episode 134. Glad to have you back in the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you of all the usual things. If you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. And of course, you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go out and look for Brian McClanahan there. If you don't want to go search for all those things, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. And while you're there, just give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook and audiobook, Forgotten Founders. And uh, the audiobook is read by yours truly as well, of the same title. Also, if you're there, if you want to support The Brian McClanahan Show, just go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights going, help keep the podcast up and running. Anything you want to contribute is greatly appreciated. And I have, of course, my new McClanahan Academy, where you can go there and get my two courses, one on secession and the other on my book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. Both have discounts until the end of December, so you can get the secession course for 5 bucks off if you use the coupon code 15SECESSION, or you can get the Hamilton course for half off if you use the coupon code HALFHAMILTON. So those deals expire at the end of December, so please consider uh, going out and getting one of my courses at McClanahan Academy. Also, you can sign up at McClanahan Academy. It's free to sign up. There's nothing uh, nothing required of you to do that. And, of course, I'll keep you updated on uh, future courses and offerings that I have, any kind of discounts or anything going on there. And also, one more thing, if you go to learntruehistory.com, that's the other website that I um, teach at. If you go there, uh, we are offering half off the master, or 150 bucks off, I should say, the master level memberships from now until the end of December. So you want to go to learntruehistory.com, you can get $150 off the master level memberships. Okay, uh, all that said, all that uh, promotional stuff, uh, just one more thing I want to remind you about this podcast. If you if you like this show and you don't, you can't get enough of me twice a week, you can go to abbevilleinstitute.org and you can listen to my weekly podcast there. So you can get me three times a week if you want that podcast as well. So abbevilleinstitute.org, I do the weekend review at the Abbeville Institute there once a week. And so you could have me three times a week on a podcast rather than just twice a week. Uh, that podcast is dedicated to all things Southern. So it's a little different, uh, little different podcast, but um, certainly something else that I do. So uh, if you'd like to do that as well. Okay, all that said, let's talk about the topic of the day. For episode 134, and this is, a, I think, a, a very interesting topic. Um, it actually was, I was inspired by an email that I received. There was a, a gentleman that emailed me and said, I love your show, love what you do. I've listened to these couple of episodes, and then I'm going through everything else that you do. And here's my question. If I was locked in a room with a few people and... I, and I wanted to learn the Constitution. I mean, that's it. This was my desire to learn the Constitution. And I just had a computer or maybe a book, and we just wanted to take a seminar on that. What, what would you recommend? If a website, these type of things. So that's actually 
what I'm going to do uh, today in a way. And I, and I have the podcast where I talk about, you know, read these books on the Constitution if you want to do that. And, of course, I've talked about originalism on this podcast all the time. So um, that's something that I, that I do quite a lot. But um, as far as, you know, what you would read and who you would read, um, there's, there's a few things. First, um, you can get my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. That for, uh, right now, that particular book, if you go to a Barnes & Noble, I know they have it here at my local Barnes & Noble. Sometimes they have it, sometimes they don't. But most of the time, they have it. They have that book now for $8 if you go to the bargain section. It's uh, one of those books. It's, not, it's not, a, not a discount book. It's a bargain book now. You go into the bargain books, 8 bucks. you can get my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. That book was, was designed to be a single volume on originalism. So I, I've gone back and I've looked at all the ratification debates and the Philadelphia Convention as well. And I've gone through essentially clause by clause and discussed the meaning of the Constitution and what the founding generation said these particular parts of the Constitution meant, how, should, how they should be interpreted at the time the Constitution was ratified, which that's originalism. You, know, you, you get away from Supreme Court decisions and you go back and look at what the generation that wrote, you know, drafted, and then uh, ratified the document said, for example, the Supremacy Clause meant, or the Necessary and Proper Clause, or the Commerce Clause, or the powers of the presidency, the powers of the Supreme Court, all these things. So I would go out and, and I would recommend you get that for eight bucks, and you can go through. It's not a long book. I mean, you're, you're looking at a book that's around 200 pages, so it's not a, an extremely dense volume. And I give you quote after quote from the founding generation. There's also an appendix that uh, has a number of quotes on particular topics that uh, would, would help you determine original meaning and original intent. So that's one thing. I, I, would, I would highly recommend that. Uh, you can also, of course, go out and, and if you want to get some more primary documents, you can get the Federalist Essays. Though I, I, I caution people about the Federalist Essays because this is what essentially two individuals, Madison and, and Hamilton, thought about the Constitution, and it was designed to encourage the New York Ratifying Convention to ratify the document. And it wasn't very persuasive. In fact, that particular convention only ratified the document by a three-vote majority, 30 to 27. So it would be more important to go back and read the ratification debates in the New York Convention rather than the Federalist Essays. Though they aren't bad. I mean, there are some of the Federalist essays that I think are, are important for understanding original intent. You can also get a book. There's, it's free online. It's, called, uh, it's titled Friends of the Constitution. It's a Liberty Fund book. And it contains essays from people who were not Madison or uh, Hamilton or Jay, who also wrote three essays in the Federalist essays. These are essays from people like Roger Sherman and John Dickinson and others. Uh, Tench Cox, and um, it's a wonderful volume. James Wilson. Essentially, what these editors did was go out and take the essays that are not part of the Federalist, quote unquote, Federalist papers, and uh, they put them in a volume. And these are the these are the um, statements made by people who supported the Constitution and what the Constitution meant. And I'm actually going to talk about one of those individuals today, um, kind of bridging off of this idea. You know, what what should we study? Or who should we study about original intent in the Constitution? And so I'd recommend getting Friends of the Constitution. 
again, free online. Just go to libertyfund.org. Uh, you can find it there. Just do a Google search for Friends of the Constitution, and it'll come up, uh, or a book, Friends of the Constitution. Um, Teaching American History is a website that has many of these primary documents as well. Uh, you can go to that. Uh, it's not a bad website. Uh, so Teaching American History. I can't remember if that's .com or .org. Uh, there, that's available. Um, and there are several websites that have m many of these primary documents. You just have to know what you're looking for uh, when you go out and look for them. But uh, the titles of them are who wrote them. So it's a, this is why I say, you know, my founding father's guide to the Constitution. It's designed to be a book that would give you an introduction to all of these things and also um, give you uh, the quotes that you need to understand original intent. It is a single-volume book on original intent, a commentary on the Constitution in a single-volume format. There are several other great commentaries on the Constitution, and I would hope I was hoping mine would be included in that in terms of original intent, but that was the design. Of course, I wrote that book now almost six years ago, so... Uh, it's been out for a while, but still, I think, very relevant um, in understanding how the Constitution should have been interpreted after uh, it was ratified. And, of course, we went off the rails right away in the first Congress, and that's what uh, how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America is all about, you know, where these things took place and who screwed it up and how they screwed it up in terms of the Constitution. So um, I think that's, uh, that was th those two books work very well in conjunction. So you got yourself in the room. You've got my founding father's guide to the Constitution. You've got uh, you know the the, the uh, teaching American history website, and of course, if you want a class on this uh, topic, we've got uh, learntruehistory.com. We've got a class on the Constitution. Myself and Kevin Goodsman teach that class there. Uh, I'm also working on one on a little different angle in my McClanahan Academy. That will probably be available in the spring. So uh, be looking for that. Uh, that'll be a great class, and it's going to be a much more in-depth primary document uh, review of American constitutionalism in general. So not just uh, the, the U.S. Constitution, but also I'll get into things like the Confederate Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, the state constitutions. We're going to look at uh, much, many of these uh, original documents, and we'll go through some of those. So it's going to be a much more in-depth study of uh, American constitutionalism uh, than what we do in the Constitution course, which is a more of a survey of American constitutional history at Learn True History. So uh, you're going to want to be looking for that class. So let me talk about uh, another part of this podcast today. And this podcast is actually going to be entitled John Dickinson. Um, and John Dickinson is one of my favorite members of the founding generation. Without doubt, he is one of the most important members of the founding generation. I dedicated a chapter on John Dickinson in my uh, Politically Incorrect Guide of the Founding Fathers. Um, he is one of these unknown members of the founding generation. You know, most people, if you did a man-on-the-street interview and you said, name some founding fathers, of course, they're going to name people like Washington and Jefferson and Madison and probably Hamilton now and, uh, you know, some of these people, Adams. But they're going to forget John Dickinson. At the time, though, in the 1770s and 1780s and 1760s, there was perhaps no more important member of the founding generation than John Dickinson. He was the penman of the Revolution, a man whose letters from a farmer in Pennsylvania helped spur action against the crown. Now, Dickinson was a moderate. He was not, at this point, what we would call a secessionist, you know, a man who was seeking independence. He thought that there were legitimate grievances against the crown, but he did not think that secession or breaking from the crown uh, 
was desirable at that time. He was not Patrick Henry or Sam Adams. He was not a firebrand. John Dickinson thought that there was a chance that they could avoid war and come to a resolution on the problems between the crown, the parliament, and the colonies. He was wrong, of course, and after the, uh, the separate states declared their independence, Dickinson supported independence and, of course, served in the military, and all of his properties, save one, were burned by the British. His plantation in Delaware was not burned, and it's still there. If you go to Dover, Delaware, you can still go visit John Dickinson's plantation. It's a, it's a neat little place. Of course, I grew up in, in Delaware, and um, so Dickinson uh, is in high esteem, held in high esteem by the people of Delaware because he was such a prominent member of, of the founding generation, and he essentially called Delaware his home state. Now, he was also from Pennsylvania. You know, that was, um, uh, that was you know, his home state as well. And in fact, at the uh, Continental Congress, when we got to the point where we're talking about declaring independence, he represented Pennsylvania, not Delaware. And he was actually the governor of both Pennsylvania and Delaware at one point. But uh, later on, Delaware was more of his home state than Pennsylvania, and that's because that's where his plantation was located. He was also a Quaker, uh, which is interesting. Um, and so Dickinson had a very interesting life. He, he participated in the Stamp Act Congress, for example. He was a member of the Continental Congress. And, of course, he served in the Philadelphia Convention and became a very prominent friend of the Constitution. And this is where people like Forrest MacDonald and other historians have gone back and looked at Dickinson and said, yeah, this guy is very important, but overlooked. And Mel Bradford actually um, had a, wrote a little book on the Constitution entitled A Better Guide Than Reason, and uh, or at least on American history at that point, A Better Guide Than Reason. And, and he took that quote from John Dickinson because during the Philadelphia Convention, when all these innovations were swirling around, and what I mean by innovations is that when people like Madison and Hamilton and other nationalists were trying to do things that were alien to the American constitutional tradition. When I say that, I'm talking about the Articles of Confederation and the very decentralized structure of American government. When they were trying to nationalize the government, trying to centralize everything in, a, in either Philadelphia or New York, trying to take away the powers of the states, trying to give the general government a negative over state law, Dickinson stood up and said, look, there is a better guide than reason. You know, reason may mislead us. And, ba and basically what he's saying there is that history should be our only guide. Reason may mislead us. That's what he's saying. History must be our only guide. Reason may mislead us. We have to, or experience, he said, must be our only guide. Reason may mislead us. And so what he's saying is, look, we, we don't want to deviate from what we know. And what we know is that centralization, we don't... We know that that probably doesn't work, number one. Number two, what we know works is our federal structure, essentially the same structure that the colonies had used in the British imperial model. Under the British imperial model, and, I, and I've talked about this on this podcast as well, the colonies had a tremendous amount of independence in terms of their local affairs. There was no central veto over colonial law when it came to things like internal taxes or internal trade. That didn't exist. And when the parliament started trying to do that, that's when the colonies began to bristle at parliamentary authority. 
So that was a major problem for the colonies, and in fact, this is why we have a situation, at least under the original model, where the states have all powers that are not delegated to the central authority or granted all legislative powers herein granted. Who is doing the granting? The people of the states. And of course, so all those powers are reserved to the people of the states, and that's a tremendous amount of power. If it didn't say that the Constitution, if the Constitution didn't say the general government can do it, it couldn't do it. But yet all the powers that were not denied by the Constitution to the states, reserved to the states, or to the people, respectively. And so all you're looking for there is Article 1, Section 10. Those are the only things the states cannot do. Everything else the states can do. And the reason the states cannot do those powers in Article 1, Section 10 is because those powers were granted to the general government, to the central authority, to do in the collective, because they thought things like declaring war and negotiating peace and regulating international trade were better done by the central authority because there was a commonality there and you could have uniformity and say negotiating with the British over a trade policy or going to war with France or Great Britain, that would be better done from a central authority. But really when you look at the general government, there are very few powers that it has and they deal with commerce and defense and that's it. So all other powers then reserved to the states and I was listening the other day to a debate from in 2010 between uh, Don Livingston and uh, Professor Guelzo, who's at, uh, I think, Gettysburg College or somewhere. And, and uh, Guelzo is an ardent Lincolnite nationalist. And he's so pompous and arrogant. Uh, but not just that. His, his argument against nullification is just simplistic and stupid in many ways. Uh, because, and, and I hear this oftentimes, this is where my secession course gets into this, this argument as well, about Article 1, Section 10. They don't understand the argument that, look, because nullification or secession are not denied by Article 1, Section 10, the states can do them. The people of the states can do them. And, of course, Calhoun insisted that nullification had to be done through a popular convention, not through the state legislature, but through the people saying we're not going to enforce this law. Only within our borders. And of course, Wells' argument, well, and that, that violates the Constitution because full faith and credit, then all the other states would have to comply because of that. And that's simply not true. That's not true. That's not what that means. Uh, this was about property more than anything else under an original definition. So again, you have to understand originalism to get to the idea that nullification and secession are possible and probable. Uh, and of course, the founding generation believed that. If you look at how many times they advocated up until 1860, a lot of them in the North. So let me get back to John Dickinson. And I want to read, he, he wrote his, his most important documents when it came to understanding the Constitution are his letters of Fabius. And uh, these essays, like the Federalist essays, were written in defense of the document. They were designed to persuade delegates to these ratifying conventions to ratify the Constitution, to support it. They were designed writ large to the public to say, look, this is why the Constitution is good and why the opponents of the documents are wrong about some of the things they're saying. And, of course, most of the time they're working off of either James Wilson's Statehouse Yard speech 
where Wilson very quickly after the Constitution was written went out and made a speech in favor of the Constitution. And I've talked about that Statehouse Yard speech on this podcast before. Or they're responding to people like George Mason, who wrote a series of letters in opposition to the document. Um, now, the essays of Brutus and Old Whig and others, of course, were important as well. This anti-Federalist tradition, where these people were the real Federalists. What they were saying is this Constitution is going to nationalize power. It's going to take away the powers of the states. We're ruined. Now, we can go back and look at that and say, yeah. They were right. I mean, they were correct in what was going to happen. But the important part of that is not what they're saying, but the reaction to that from the quote-unquote friends of the Constitution. You see, that's where original intent comes from. It comes from the people who are saying, no, you're wrong. This is what the Constitution actually means. This is what the language actually means. The friends of the document, people like Roger Sherman and John Dickinson and Oliver Wolcott and Oliver Ellsworth and uh, people like that. John Rutledge, not just Madison and Hamilton, no, but the people who are arguing for it and the ratifying conventions, even James Wilson, the nationalist, who said things that weren't very nationalist about the document. His statehouse yard speech is beautiful in terms of federalism. Some of the speeches he made in the Pennsylvania ratifying convention were beautiful in terms of articulating a federalist position. What I mean by that is real federalism, where the states still have a tremendous amount of power in this document. It's not a nationalist document. He's defending a federal republic. In fact, uh, he at one point essentially calls it that, a confederated republic. That's what James Wilson calls it, a confederated republic. And confederated and federal are the same things. So I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from John Dickinson about the Constitution and the meaning of the document. And I, I'm getting to a couple of parts here when it comes to the federal structure of the document. Because that's the important part to understand about originalism. You have to maintain that federal structure. So, quote, this is from Fabius II, quote, Though small, let it be remembered that it is to be created by the sovereignties of the several states. He's talking about the Senate here. That is, by the persons whom the people of each state shall judge to be most worthy, and who surely will be religiously attentive to making a selection in which the interests and honor of their state will be so deeply concerned. It should be remembered, too, that this is the same manner in which the members of Congress are now appointed, and that herein the sovereignties of the states are so intimately involved that however a renunciation of part of these powers may be desired by some of the states, it will never be obtained from the rest of them. Peaceable, fraternal, and benevolent as, as these are, they think, the concessions they have made ought to satisfy all. So what he's saying here is that the Senate, he's talking about the Senate in this particular structure, the Senate is going to guard the, quote, sovereignties of the states, just like they do, under the Articles of Confederation. He says, remember, the state legislatures pick these people. They go out to the Senate then, and they represent the states, just like in the Articles of Confederation, where the states are represented in the legislature. So the Senate is the federal function of the original Constitution. Now, we can say, well, that was destroyed by the 17th Amendment. We just had an election yesterday in Alabama where we had a popular vote. Uh, if the state legislature of Alabama was involved in that, um, we would have had a different outcome, I think. Uh, we wouldn't have had a, a, a Democrat winning the election 
Now, we may not have had Roy Moore as the candidate either. You know, it might have been somebody else. Uh, so this is a, an interesting, you know, situation where a, 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 the, re, the repeal of the 17th Amendment would produce an entirely different political climate in the Senate, which is why I think that should be something that should be done. Repeal the 17th Amendment and return this power back to the state legislatures, where it was designed to be a safeguard of the states and the whole process. This is why the Senate has more power than any other part of the general government. It has control over the executive branch, it has control over the judicial branch, and it has control over the legislative branch. It has to, the, the House cannot do anything without the concurrence of the Senate. The president's appointment power is tied into the concurrence of the Senate. The president's foreign policy power is tied into the concurrence of the Senate. So when you look at the judicial branch, the judicial branch in terms of who can sit in the federal judiciary is tied into the concurrence of the Senate. So the Senate, being the voice of the states, was the most important part of the general government. And again, to understand original intent, you have to look at the Senate. Now, he also addressed this fear of nationalism. So we're going to nationalize. We're going to centralize everything in the central authority. And he said this, quote, As to the idea that the superintending sovereign will must of consequence destroy the subordinate sovereignties of the several states, it is begging a concession of the question by inferring that a manifest and great usefulness must necessarily end in abuse. And not only so, but it requires an extension of the principle of all society. For the subordinate sovereignties, or, in other words, the undelegated rights of the several states in a confederation, stand upon the very same foundation with the undelegated rights of individuals in a society. The federal sovereign will be composed of the subordinate sovereign wills of the several confederated states. As some persons seem to think, a bill of rights is the best security of rights. The sovereignties of the several states have this best security by the proposed constitution, and more than this best security, for they are not barely declared to be rights, but are taken into it as component parts for the perpetual preservation by themselves. In short, the government of each state is and is to be sovereign and supreme in all matters that relate to each state only. It is to be subordinate barely in those matters that relate to the whole. And it will be their own faults if the several states suffer the federal sovereignty to interfere in things of their respective jurisdictions. An instance of such interference will regard to, a, to any single state will be a dangerous precedent as to all and therefore will be guarded against by all as the trustees or servants of the several states will not dare, if they retain their senses, so to violate the independent sovereignty of their respective states, that justly daring object of American affections to which they are responsible, besides being endeared by all the charities of life. This is from Fabius III. So again, let me interpret this 18th century language for you. What he's saying here essentially is that, look, the states retain all powers not delegated to the central authority. He said that. Just like in society, in individuals, they retain all liberties not delegated to the state. And of course, he's saying the state bill of rights, which are very good, are already protecting individuals from a central authority. Because you don't, this is, this is the argument against the bill of rights. You didn't need one, it was argued. Because the central government only has the powers you tell it it has. It can't do anything else. So if you give it a bill of rights, you're actually undermining the whole purpose of original intent. And that is by saying, well, if we don't do this, then um, 
they're going to assume they have other powers. No, that's not how it was argued. It was argued that that would never be the case. In fact, James Wilson said that. Roger Sherman said that. This would never be the case because we've delegated, expressly delegated, of course that term was used by some, but we've expressly delegated certain powers to the central authority. They have no other power. So they have no power, for example, over speech or press or religion. They have no authority to do so. They can't pass a law relating to those things because there's no power in Article 1, Section 8 that allows the Congress to say we're going to regulate speech or we're going to le- regulate the press or we're going to regulate religion. We can't do it. So the states already had these safeguards. They already had bills of rights, separate bills of rights. And so we should feel confident that our civil liberties are protected by those things. And notice that he also uses the term sovereignties of the several states. The federal sovereign we compose of the subordinate sovereign wills of the several confederated states. The sovereign wills. Sovereign. Sovereignty. This term has meaning. Sovereignty. What is it? It is supreme authority. And he even says it, it, the states are to be subordinate barely in those matters that relate to the whole. Barely. Meaning they're, <laughs> they're not really giving up their status as independent states. They're saying, we're granting certain authority to you, but we retain that. And I've talked about this before. If you grant a power, you have the power to do so. You have the power to take that grant back as well. And, of course, the states do. They can do that. They can abolish the entire structure through an amendment. They could have a convention and say, you know what? We no longer have a president. We no longer have a Congress. We no longer have a Supreme Court. They could do any of this stuff if they truly wanted to. If they truly wanted to, this is where all the power remains. This is not subversive of the government. This is not some type of alien position. This is what the founding generation said about government back in the 1780s. This is what they said about the Constitution itself. And that Guelzo actually called someone a traitor for suggesting that the general government can be a soft tyranny. And it can. You're a traitor. You're Benedict Arnold, he said. Ridiculous. But this is the nationalist position. And, of course, that nationalist position did not win either in Philadelphia or in the state ratifying conventions. It did not win. What won was the idea that we have a a federal or confederated republic, as the Friends of the Constitution said, as John Dickinson called it, where the states still are sovereign and all matters not delegated to the central authority. And even there, they're barely subordinate barely subordinate. Now, that is original intent. That's how we understand the Constitution. We need the Senate to be the state check on the entire structure. We need the states to grow a backbone and say the general government is abusing its power. We are, we are exercising our powers as sovereignties and saying you cannot do that. The only, the only entity powerful enough to check a government is another government. Individuals can't do it. This is why the states, as Jefferson and Madison believed, were hedges against the central authority. Calhoun, the only powerful, the only entity powerful enough to check a government is another government. And so the states have to be the safeguard. The states have to say, you know what, we're going to block these unconstitutional laws. We're not going to do it. You can look at things like non-commandeering. We're not going to use our state authorities to go out and enforce federal law. 
because it's not something we have to do. You want to send in your marshals, you want to use your federal law enforcement, fine, but you only have so many people that can do that. And so we're just not going to enforce federal law if we don't find that law to be constitutional. So there are all kinds of things the states can do to block federal power. And it's not, it's not subversive. It's not illegal. It's originalism. It's the federal structure. It's how it was designed. It's Article 1, Section 10. It's Article 1, Section 8. The Supremacy Clause only applies to laws made in pursuance of the Constitution. If those laws are not made in pursuance of the Constitution, i.e. they don't come from Article 1, Section 8, then it's no law. This is what Alexander Hamilton himself said in the Federalist Essays. Of course, he didn't really believe it. That's why I say Hamilton lied. But he said it. And so which Hamilton do we believe? Well, we should believe the one that's, that's arguing for ratification because that's what people believed would happen. Now, of course, people understood, and John Lansing among them, that Hamilton was probably lying or was lying at the Poughkeepsie Convention in 1788. But that's, that's beyond the fact. We should hold him to his word and say, this is the Constitution you said we would get. We're not going to have something else. We should look at John Dickinson as a true prophet in terms of what the Constitution should mean, or Roger Sherman, or even James Wilson, who became a terrible nationalist after the thing was ratified. But in 1787, he was saying the right things. Or we should look at John Rutledge, who in Philadelphia said that a federal negative over state law ought to damn the Constitution. should never happen. He would not agree to that, and neither would anyone else. There is no federal veto of state law, John Marshall notwithstanding. So John Marshall believes there was. And of course, he, he pushed that position in his time as Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, which is where John Marshall also screwed up America, which is in the, half of the second half of my book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. So... That is, I mean, this is this podcast again is dedicated to the individual who emailed me about that. I'm gonna, I'll make sure that they get that the link to this. But uh, this is for everyone else as well. This is how you understand originalism. These are the things you need, and this is the ammunition you need when you go out and you start arguing with people about original intent, what the Constitution can do, what the federal government can do. This is where you go back and say, look, just. Read what the founding, read the friends of the Constitution and what they said. I know a lot of people like to read the Anti-Federalist essays because it makes you feel good, like, yeah, I'm right, because these people said this is going to happen. Uh, and in fact, what's crazy is that Joseph Story actually said uh, he defended the Constitution based on the Anti-Federalist essays because, hey, this is what they said it was going to mean. This is what it means. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. He's not going back and looking at the people who actually said this is what the Constitution means. It's just so silly. But... Um, certainly, I think that uh, if you can understand originalism, if you can understand that original intent from the ratification debates, you're going to understand where we went off the rails and how we should fix things. And it comes back to the states. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClendon Show.